Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today we're talking about sleep with Vivek Jain, MD, Director of the GW Center for Sleep Disorders and Associate Professor of Medicine in the, in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine here at GW. Dr. Jain is a graduate from the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India. He did his residency in internal medicine and fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Missouri Hospital and Clinics, Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Jain's research on various aspects of sleep disorders has been published in dozens of peer-reviewed scholarly journals and several books. He lectures nationally and internationally on the topics of obstructive sleep apnea and heart disease. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Vivek. Uh, thank you, uh, Janet. Thank you, Leigh. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. We're really glad to have you. We're big believers in sleep medicine and sleep hygiene. So, what is sleep medicine? Uh, great question, Janet. Uh, you know, sleep medicine, uh, you know, I always tell our new fellows and residents who are joining us in the program that this is relatively a new subspecialty. Uh, you know, historically speaking, uh, uh, you know, we all know that we, 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 you know, we all know we sleep, right? I mean, it's, it's a given, but, you know, is it a science to it? Uh, uh, are there disorders associated with it? Uh, that is something that was relatively new, uh, for years and years, we believed that uh, sleep was just shutting off an, of, of wakefulness or, or, or an active mind, something that will give us rest. Uh, so if uh, a neuron is active in the daytime, it needs rest at night. And so that was kind of a, a belief that we've held for many years. But sleep is actually an active process. There are other things that are happening in sleep uh, which are necessary and essential for, for life. Uh, and to understand that and have you know, capabilities of, uh, of understanding those processes, uh, that took a while. And it just kind of started as, you know, a group of psychiatrists getting together and saying, maybe we should learn a little bit more about dreams and sleep. Uh, and for years, sleep medicine was under the domain of psychiatrists. And then we started, of course, understanding, you know, the electrical waveforms, so the neurologists took over, and then the sleep disorder breathing or sleep apnea came into vogue in the 80s. So the pulmonologists started getting involved. And I think that's where I come in, being a pulmonary critical care specialist and suddenly finding this whole new area of, uh, of medicine. Uh, and just in the last 30 years or so, I think uh, the American Board of Medical Subspecialty has realized that even though sleep impacts every aspect of health, it should be its own medical subspecialty. Uh, and so the, the, that was, I guess, the birth of sleep medicine. And so now we have a, a separate specialty. We have a separate board. Uh, it's a separate exam, so I'm triple board certified in, or quadruple internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, and sleep medicine, uh, and we have a separate fellowship, a separate training program for it. So I guess in a nutshell, that's sleep medicine. Very fascinating. Uh, fun fact, I actually started my career in sleep medicine, so this is definitely a topic that is very close to my heart, um, and I, I think I've been thinking about it probably even more so lately because we've had the COVID-19 pa pandemic and um, wondering about what disrupted sleep has looked like during that pandemic, how has this has affected patient populations that you see at your center? You know, uh, again, a great question, Lay. Uh, you know, we've all suffered from uh, from the effects of the pandemic in different ways. Uh, 
um, you know, I'm sure each of us at a personal level will have our own stories about how it's uh, affected us in terms of mood, in terms of anxiety, in terms of, uh, you know, a broader, you know, changes in belief systems or whatever. But absolutely, in the clinic itself, we've seen the impact of uh, of how it's uh, affected sleep. Uh, and, you know, both anecdotally and I'll, you know, obviously talk a little bit about uh, some of the more published data but anecdotally, absolutely, you know, people were were you know worried about the impacts of the pandemic on on life and health and and jobs, etc. And so there was definite in some yeah that we saw, uh, uh, you know, uh, the prevalence uh, increased, the incidence increased, uh, and, and you know the studies that were done more recently looking at just that very specific question have shown that clearly. There was, uh, you know, an increase in in in, in prevalence and incidence of insomnia type complaints in the society in general, but more so among uh, people who suffered from COVID and who suffered, uh, uh, you know, who were looking after these COVID patients. So the healthcare workers were were even more impacted by by stress and anxiety related uh, sleep disturbance. So, uh, it definitely impacted uh, women more than men. It, it, it definitely impacted people with. Uh, pre-existing insomnia or pre-existing predilection to insomnia even more. Uh, it affected people with underlying mood disorders more, um, uh, uh, you know, who had, say, you know, history of anxiety or history of depression or some other form of uh, uh, mood-related sleep conditions. Uh, so certainly their sleep got even worse. Uh, uh, you know, surprisingly, uh, it is not all negative. Uh, uh, you know, uh, what I also saw in the clinic and has then uh, since then been uh, reported as as actual research and data, there was also, you know, people, because they started working from home, uh, uh, they had more opportunity to sleep, if you may. Um, so, you know, things like travel times went away. Uh, you know, the time to get, like, formally ready in the morning, uh uh, went away. So they actually had more time to sleep. You know, one thing, uh, you know, I'm sure the audience will appreciate is that as a society, we've become more sleep deprived uh, for different reasons. Uh, you know, uh, 24 hours are never enough. Uh, you know, we have uh, many different reasons, more things to do, more pro TV programs to watch, uh, you know, getting up, commute times, uh, you know, so those things uh, were decreased during the pandemic. And so people, when they were uh, actually, uh, surveyed to ask if they were sleeping more they actually said yes uh, uh, the other place where it had a positive impact was uh, you know some of us tend to be or quite a few of us tend to be somewhat more of night owls or relative night owls so uh, you know the use of alarm if, if one uses that as a metric like how many people in the society use an alarm to wake up during the weekdays a lot of us will say yes to that question <laughs> Uh, and, and so the alarm means that I'm curtailing my sleep. So I'm, I'm shortening my sleep unnaturally, uh, uh, you know, and so that's a form of sleep deprivation. Uh, and, and so a lot of, you know, just by surveying people by saying, you know, is the alarm now being set for a later time? You'll be surprised how many people said yes to that question. Yes, now I can sleep an extra hour in the morning. And so they're getting not only more sleep, but sleep at their more natural circadian time. And so that did have uh, what I would say a positive impact on sleep and less sleepiness in the daytime. But absolutely, there's no doubt that, you know, the pandemic did have negative effects on sleep. Uh, you know, the confinement at home had a, its own effect on sleep and mood, uh, the anxiety about the pandemic itself, uh, you know, cohabitation. I mean, I was not used to all of a sudden, 
you know, uh, working from home or living at home at the same time and, you know, the whole family at home. So, you know, there were definite negative and positive aspects to sleep. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's really insightful. And I think the, the, the anxiety is probably a lot of people can really relate to that. Uh, one of the things that I'm wondering about is when you mentioned being confined to your home, I know in some cases that meant for people getting less physical activity and what effect that might have on their sleep. Great point, Leigh. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, in general, one of the sleep hygiene tips that we all talk about and try to encourage is that, uh, you know, just getting out of the house, uh, not only for physical activity, but exposure to nature or exposure to sunlight uh, can have a very positive impact on mood and sleep. Uh, and that did go away because of the confinement. And that perhaps played a role. The other negative aspect, which uh, more recently got published, was that uh, especially uh, younger generation, uh, you know, the, the survey was done just asking them, did their screen times increase? And already, we already know that the screen times are super high, but did they even increase further during the pandemic? And the answer was uh, unequivocal, yes. And that extra exposure to the artificial light uh, and not the nature also negatively impacted mood and sleep. One of the things that um, I just I remember reading or hearing years ago had to do with um, our sleep cycle or 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 our natural sleep cycle without um, the uh, benefits of of modern technology, and that apparently during colonial times it wasn't unusual for people to wake up at four o'clock in the morning, do stuff and then go back to sleep and then get up again. And so I was curious if you'd ever heard that. I have, Janet. And, you know, we call that the concept of two sleeps. Uh, and believe it or not, it's still prevalent. So so the circadian, um, you know, uh, circadian control of sleep uh, is highly genetically uh, controlled and, and manifest. And so it's not changed yet. You know, maybe it'll take another 15 or 20 generations and it, it will change. Uh, but yes, you know, that concept of two sleeps exists. Uh, it existed definitely in the pre-industrial age where, you know, we would uh, naturally uh, start feeling sleepy after sunset uh, because darkness induces the secretion of melatonin in the brain. And melatonin is a support of like, or a sleep-inducing agent. Uh, and, and so uh, that's the natural way of, 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 of how our body works. So darkness, uh, dusk, uh, you know, and, and then melatonin secretion starts. It peaks at about four to five hours. That's when we all fall, uh, feel sleepy and fall asleep. Uh, and then we get what we call as good amount of deep sleep uh, in the first three to four hours of sleep. So uh, and that was a prevalent habit of the pre-industrial age. Uh, um, and, and, and people would wake up uh, somewhere between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And, and start the day. And many times they would not even go back to sleep, and you know, the, you know, this mainly a, a agricultural society. So at four a.m. they would go uh, feed the animals and start the work uh, in the fields, and then they would take a long siesta in the afternoons. Uh, um, you know, uh, when you know uh, there is something called a natural circadian dip that happens in all of us, and we all experience it, which is the lull in the afternoon. It's not necessarily related to what we eat at lunch. It's just a natural time that we all feel sleepy and sluggish. And these people were taking advantage of that natural you know, sluggishness and just taking a long siesta at that time. 
and 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 even now the, those those kind of uh, you know sleep cycles exist in, the, in in our brain and we know that you know most of our deep sleep happens in the first four or five hours of sleep and and the most of the REM sleep uh, happens in the next half of the uh, of sleep and so you know a good consolidated sleep uh, can be just four to five hours in the beginning and and uh, and we can be be okay but then we have to compensate by taking the siesta now what's happened over time in, in societies is that we have come to to negate uh, taking naps in the daytime we look look at it as a weakness in societies uh, Oh, why do you feel sleepy in the afternoon? Why should you want to sleep in the afternoons? You know, uh, or, or we do everything we can. You know, coffee in the afternoon, chocolate right. in the afternoon, <laughs> some type of stimulant in the afternoon. Exactly, and so we've gone away from this. Uh, you know, falling on body rhythms and actual circadian rhythms to becoming more of a robotic society. And you know, most of us are okay with that, and we've survived, I guess. But uh, there are sleep disorders that we know for a fact exist only because of that. And mm. and and so, in those situations, in the clinic at least, I will tell them this concept of two sleeps. Tell them don't worry about awakening at night; it could be a totally a normal phenomena. Uh, you know, taking a 20-30 minute nap in the daytime is encouraged. Uh, lots of studies have shown a positive impact of daytime napping on mood, on cardiovascular health. Uh, and and so you know again uh, as a sleep society we need to do more about encouraging that so I certainly appreciate your question and and this podcast to try and spread this message to the world. I am happy to hear all that, Dr. Jane, because I am a fan of the disco nap. Are you familiar <laughs> with the disco nap? No, you'll have to tell me what a disco nap is. <laughs> that, that's that thirty-minute nap. Okay. Uh, mm, I've always called it a cat nap, but that maybe that's because I have cats. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to know is what are some of the common misconceptions about sleep disorders? Because I myself have sleep apnea and it took forever um, for me to go and have it treated because people just couldn't figure out what was going on with me. And curiously enough, I was watching some TV show on FX back in the day and it involved a, a character that had it and i'm like when he listed off his symptoms i'm like okay i'm i'm that i'm that i'm that and then i went to my um pcp and said hey can i have a sleep test so anyway what are some common misconceptions about sleep disorders so, so certainly uh, taking off from that very point uh, you know about sleep apnea uh, you know there's so many sleep disorders i'll start with sleep apnea as being one of the places where we do carry a lot of misconceptions, not just in the general public, but even among physicians. For years and years and years, we thought that sleep apnea is a disease uh, of middle-aged to older men who are overweight, who are uh, snoring and waking up the neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> and we never, and you know, and we realized over time that that uh, classic textbook description of sleep apnea applies to perhaps a minority of patients with sleep apnea. And so for years and years, and even now, I believe, we are just kind of, kind of touching the tip of the iceberg and missing a lot of patients like you, Janet, who present differently. Or, uh, you know, so there are gender differences in sleep apnea to start with. Uh, you know, uh, women tend to be silent sleep apnics where they're not snoring and waking up the neighborhood. Uh, their spouses are usually deep sleepers, so um, they don't tend to notice uh, that, uh, you know, a, a woman is having... Uh, you know, funny breathing in sleep or witnessed apneas. And so they don't present so much with sleepiness in the daytime. So typically we were taught and learned 
And that is true that patients with sleep apnea would, uh, will feel very sleepy in the daytime, but there's so many of them who don't feel sleepy. They just feel tired in the daytime. They feel, you know, other subtle symptoms like inability to focus or concentrate, or they feel that their memory is affected, but they don't necessarily feel sleepy. And so, and women tend to, uh, you know, fall into that category where they may present with more mood issues or, or depression, even depression-like symptoms, as opposed to men who are sleepier than women are with the same degree of sleep apnea. So understanding the gender differences or different presentations of sleep apnea is a, is a very important thing. Uh, uh, something, again, why sleep medicine has become its own uh, specialty and, and we are hoping to you know, spread this message uh, that people can not snore and still have sleep apnea. You know, sleep apnea can also be a cause for frequent urination at night. So that's another thing that... Uh, uh, people don't realize that just the need to go to the bathroom at night can be a sign of uh, sleep apnea, uh, especially in younger people, uh, less than 50, 60 years of age. Um, and in fact, it, it is a more sensitive marker of sleep apnea than snoring is. Uh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, things like sweats at night or feeling hot at night uh, is not necessarily menopausal. It can also, you know, in an older woman can imply that they're having sleep apnea. The, the sleep apnea risk goes up after menopause by three times uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to premenopause, um, you know, insomnia, the sleep disturbance, the awakenings at night. I just had a patient this morning whose main complaint is that he just wakes up every two, three hours without any reason. And and why does he do that is his concern. And, I, you know, he has no snoring. He has no daytime sleepiness. He just gets up a lot of times to go to the bathroom and feel that he's just waking up every two hours on the clock. And so, you know, a better sleep study will be positive. Uh, headaches in the morning, uh, you know, decreased libido, uh, you know. Now we know there's a strong association between low testosterone and men and sleep apnea. So there are lots of different uh, presentations of a very common condition, sleep apnea, and that's one myth. The other myth, uh, which is not sleep apnea related, is, again, uh, if I can survive at six hours of sleep, <laughs> that'll be okay. You know, I, I do well with six hours of sleep. Uh, you know, I think uh, one has to realize that one can do well for a while, <laughs> but uh, right, it's only it, a matter of time. It's just a matter of time, <laughs> you know. Uh, our our ability to handle that uh, short sleep will uh, change, and you know, there's so much data now showing that uh, you know voluntary sleep restriction or getting less than adequate amount of sleep uh, can have a, uh, an impact not only how sleepy and tired we are in the daytime but uh, long-term effects on diabetes, insulin resistance, cardiovascular health. And on the same lines, that's another myth that if I sleep five, six hours during the weekdays, I can catch up by getting more sleep on the weekends. Unfortunately, that's not how the body works. Uh, I was so disappointed when I learned that (laughs) that did not work because I was so excited when I read like in the mid-aughts, you can catch up on that sleep and you can get those brain cells back and and <laughs> cut, cut to 15 years later and they're like, nope. Yeah, yeah. So that's another very common myth that we need to dispel in the society that if I, for whatever reason I get, I need seven hours of sleep, but I happen to get six tonight, that deficit of one hour needs to be made up in the next 24 to 48 hours by either getting eight hours or you know, six and seven and a half, seven and a half in the next two nights or something like that, you know, so, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, so now that we know a little bit about some of the sleep disorders, maybe we should learn a little bit more about how we can improve our sleep hygiene and um, some non-medication strategies for sleep disorders. Uh, 
you know, and uh, lay, uh, you obviously know a lot about this, you know, having uh, had some training in Steve, but, you know, a lot of us can just uh, follow the basic sleep science and say to ourselves, hey, just, you know, number one, you know, we all have a certain amount of sleep that we need, right? So, and we all should get a gauge of that ourselves. So there are all kinds of people out there. And in the previous section, I'd mentioned about six hours of sleep as a cutoff, but there are people who can who can get by by six or less hours of sleep, and we call them the short sleepers. Some people need nine or more hours of sleep, and you know they, we call them the long sleepers. And both are normal kind of people, but majority of the people need, say, seven to eight hours of sleep. And the best way one can learn about how much sleep I need is how much sleep do I get when I'm on vacation? So I have no worries about work. I don't have any worries about society. I don't have to follow a certain schedule. How much sleep am I getting to feel good? And so that's usually the best way to gauge how much sleep I need. Uh, and then I should try to apply that on my daily routines. The second thing is that I should, and the, that's where you know the, the, the clash between individuals and society comes in, that... We have to not only get seven, eight hours of sleep, but we have to get those seven, eight hours of sleep according to my own schedule and according to my own circadian rhythm. And that's a clash because, uh, you know, say majority of the people are 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. sleepers, but some are 9 a.m. to or 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. sleepers, and some are uh, 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. or 7, 9 a.m. sleepers. And so the question really is, are we as a society allowed not only to get our requisite sleep, but according to our, our own schedules? And that is a big challenge. Now, what can we do? So there is, uh, you know, so I mentioned this in reference to to melatonin and darkness before. So light is disruptive to sleep in all all of us, you know, and we we have stopped paying attention to it. Uh, you know, in our kind of society that we live in, with not only you know uh, electricity in the house and lighting in the house, but the fact that we are in front of electronic devices late at night is an independent, uh, uh, you know, disruptor of sleep. Uh, and lots of studies have done showing, uh, you know, comparisons between total darkness before bedtime, like 30 to 40 minutes before bedtime, to, uh, you know, using like one of those uh, screened lights, uh, like notepads with dim light, or using just a bright light like iPads or whatever. I'm not, you know, wanting to use any specific names, but any bright light device versus a less lighted device versus no light, and people have shown worsening of sleep with any amount of light. The more light, the worse the sleep, um, you know, in terms of even the stages of sleep. So less deep sleep, less REM sleep, less total amount of sleep. And so things to do or pay attention to is avoid light in the 30, 30 to 60 minutes before desired bedtime. That's one thing, you know. Uh, we also should pay attention to temperature in the bedroom, you know. So certainly uh, most most of us sleep better in a cooler environment, uh, you know, so, um, you know, it's a cool, quiet, and dark bedroom environment is important. So, you know, some people, again, all of us are very differently sensitive to different things, but once I realize that I'm having poor sleep, what are the factors that I can pay attention to? Is the light coming in, in the room from the street? Is the light coming in the room from under the doors? Um, you know, is there noise uh, coming from the street? Should I put a noise blocker? Should I put a white noise machine, uh, you know, uh, and so there are different factors, environmental factors that can disrupt sleep. Uh, what are the other modifiable factors, you know, things that can worsen sleep is late meals. So, so you know, the stomach takes two to three hours to empty into the intestines. So if I eat within two to three hours of my bedtime, uh, the food will not go from the stomach into the intestine. And so I'm laying down, I'm trying to sleep. 
that food in the stomach can independently affect sleep quality. Um, and so that's something that we should be aware of. Uh, um, it, it also, by the way, leads to obesity and, and worsening sleep apnea and worsening acid reflux. Uh, uh, but independent of that, it can also worsen sleep quality. Uh, obviously, you know, the common things like alcohol, big sleep disruptor, you know, and, you know, so it, it, it is, it is, you know, it's, it causes, uh, you know, interruptions in sleep, sleep uh, quality is, is lighter, uh, with alcohol, it causes more, more arousals and awakenings. It's a diuretic, so the need to go to the bathroom increases. If I have sleep apnea, which is caused by the relaxation of the upper airway muscles, alcohol makes those muscles even more relaxed, so it worsens sleep apnea. So absolutely, uh, in general, you know, alcohol can, can be a bad thing for sleep. Uh, um, what else am I missing here? Uh, quickly, let's let's stick with the the theme of alcohol there because I feel like that's one that people really don't understand, right? You hear everyone saying, I'm going to have a nightcap or I'm going to have this nightcap because it helps me sleep. Everyone thinks that alcohol helps them sleep, but you're telling us it doesn't. It doesn't, right? So, you know, that is, again, one of the myths in society is that because it is a sedating agent, it works on the same exact receptors called GABA receptors in the brain where you know, your common drugs like Ambien or Lunesta and all are supposed to work. So GABA is a natural neurochemical in the brain that helps us sleep. And so if I activate those receptors, I will feel sedated and, you know, sleepy. But these receptors are present so many places in the body. It's not just in the sleep-promoting areas of the brain. And that's where some of the side effects of these medications come in, as well as the the problems with alcohol. Plus, the alcohol has a very, very short half-life. So it goes attaches to these receptors and we all know the effects that makes us feel more relaxed, more disinhibited, more, uh, uh, you know, uh, more, it's a support effect. You know, we, we, we feel the, the, the kind of the, the sedating effects of alcohol, but then those, those go away so quickly. And so we may fall asleep with the alcohol, but, you know, we know that it just keeps waking us throughout the night. And we've all, you know, I think uh, most of us who do drink once in a while will notice those disrupting effects of alcohol throughout the night. And chronic alcohol just totally makes our sleep mechanisms in the brain kaput. So those who drink more than three, four times a week, uh, you know, simply should realize that it has a much more long-term effect on sleep quality, not just the acute effect on sleep quality. So since we're talking about mechanisms, um, one of the, the questions one of my um, colleagues asked us to ask you is what are the mechanisms and treatment strategies that exist for people that suffer from nightmares? So nightmare is is an unpleasant dream. So we all dream. Uh, now, we may not necessarily remember our dreams the next day, uh, but uh, and dreams can be both uh, during REM sleep, or classically, uh, we've all learned that, and but they also happen sometimes during non-REM sleep. Uh, in general, the REM sleep dreams are the ones that we see as stories, the vivid dreams, the colorful dreams, the music dreams. You know, it's like a story playing in front of our eyes. Uh, Non-REM dreams tend to be more shadowy, more, you know, uh, vague, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, you know PTSD type uh, flashbacks or, or dreams uh, or uh, you know those happen actually more during non-REM sleep than during REM sleep, um, uh, and 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 there people have used different strategies to 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 treat those kind of flashbacks, uh, such as you know biofeedback, cognitive feedback, uh, uh, drugs like prazosin, um, but in people when they have nightmares, meaning a negative content dream. 
it's usually associated with uh, a psychological issue, anxiety, depression. So that needs to be ruled out. So you're wanting to target the underlying cause of why my dream has a negative content, which, you know, going back to the Freudian times, it just reflects our general mood. Uh, um, you know, dreams is in, in, in essence are kind of reflection of what we've been thinking the whole day. So if we've been having pleasant thoughts or neutral thoughts, then we're going to have pleasant or neutral dreams. If uh, during the day we've been having negative thoughts or, um, uh, you know, unpleasant uh, thoughts, then the dreams are going to be negative and unpleasant. Uh, and and so that's where, you know, nightmares come from. Uh, now, why some people dream more than the others? So that's a separate issue, uh, which... Uh, uh, I can briefly talk about if we have time. Uh, so, uh, you know, if I, you know, any, there are people, not just nightmares, but people will say, why do I dream so much more than other people? Um, um, you know, so again, what are the things that make us have more REM sleep? Uh, what are the causes of more REM sleep at night? So one is lack of REM sleep on a daily basis. So what causes lack of REM sleep? So a very simple example is that if I'm a night owl and my preferred biological wake-up time is, say, 8 a.m., but every morning, because of work or social reasons or family reasons, I wake up at 6 or 6.30, then I lose an hour or two of my natural sleep every night, right? And and most of our dream sleep or REM sleep happens in the second half of the night. So many, many nights I'm missing out on my natural REM sleep. So every few nights, my, my brain will try to recover that lost REM sleep. So I will have more REM sleep. So I'll have more dreams, you know, so that's another one reason for more REM sleep, random more REM sleep. Going back to the example of alcohol, alcohol, antidepressants, and things like that are REM disruptors. And so once in a while, the brain will try to recover from that lost REM sleep, and I will dream more. And if I have unpleasant thoughts, and I'll have nightmares. Uh, sleep apnea is another reason for sometimes uh, dreaming more, because I lose REM sleep with sleep apnea. And so once in a while, my brain will recover from REM sleep. So sleep apnea is something that I try to rule out in people with nightmare disorder, even if they have underlying anxiety and depression or other mood issues. Uh, and a lot of psychiatrists will refer the people with nightmare issues to us in the sleep clinic just to make sure they don't have, have sleep apnea. And I'd certainly talk to them about uh, sleep hygiene as well. Very, very interesting. Um, so another really interesting area to me is the role of diet and nutrition in all this. And I see that you've published an article, What You Eat Could Affect Your Sleep, Dietary Findings in Patients with Newly Diagnosed Obstructive Sleep Apnea. So what were your findings? <laughs> Leigh, I tell you, that was uh, something very interesting to us. Uh, the project started, uh, you know, going back to some of the myths of uh, sleep medicine, which is that, uh, you know, sleep apnea affects only, uh, you know, the middle-aged or elderly obese male who's snoring and excessively sleepy in the daytime. And what we have been seeing in the clinic and what's been well described is that a third of the population in general in sleep clinics uh, which, which, who, who end up having sleep apnea is young, thin, uh, non-sleepy, uh, non-obese, uh, uh, sometimes women, sometimes men, and so this question came to us, and not just us, it's come to many researchers all over the world, is that what are the risk factors for sleep apnea in in this population that is not uh, meeting the classic textbook criteria? And so uh, we know that anatomy plays a role. So, you know, it could certainly be based on how my jaw is structured or uh, perhaps genetics. But what we wanted to explore is that is this somehow related to what we eat? 
And so, uh, uh, and there are other uh, you know researchers that have looked at the use of uh, you know synthesized or processed foods on on uh, on on health issues, uh, you know, cardiovascular issues or diabetes and things like that. And so our project really started by surveying people coming with sleep apnea and also you know, giving them, you know, the NHANES, uh, uh, the NIH, uh, uh, you know, survey for, for what kind of food they eat. And our really, our goal was initially to, our, our hypothesis was that we wanted to see a link between increased consumption of processed foods and, uh, and sleep apnea. <laughs> now, uh, Cut to the chase, uh, you know, we didn't find a strong correlation between processed foods and sleep apnea. We found a signal perhaps suggesting that there was a link. But what the, the more interesting finding was that these young, thin people, if they were getting 35% or more of the calories through fat in the diet, even though they were not obese or, or overweight at all, they were young and thin people with normal BMIs, but just from the survey, if they were eating more fat as a total proportion of the diet, more than 35% of the calories, they had twice the risk of developing sleep apnea than those who were not eating that much fat. Wow. So with the ketogenic diet, the keto craze, is this something you're more concerned about? A great question, Leigh, and that is exactly that's something that's come up more recently in, in, in our discussions is that is keto diet more protective or more harmful <laughs> to sleep disordered breathing, because there was some research showing uh, from bariatric surgery that uh, perhaps uh, you know even without the surgery or the weight loss surgery, just by putting them on a ketogenic diet, we can actually decrease the prevalence of sleep apnea. Because that's one population that has a lot of sleep apnea, and <laughs> that's a very interesting thought. And we don't know the answer till we do that uh, that uh, that's uh, that research. Uh, the other thing I just do want to point out uh, are two things that I want to point out. Though number one is that in the same survey, we also found that uh, in, uh, increased dairy consumption was actually protective of having sleep apnea. So perhaps vitamin D, perhaps calcium, was protecting our body. Uh, uh, we didn't know that, uh, uh, but you know when you do research, we find strange things. Uh, and so now we need to understand the mechanism why calcium or vitamin D should protect things uh, uh, in terms of sleep apnea. The last thing I do want to point out, it is just one research. You know, I do not want the public right. to all of a sudden start eating fat and vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, but are... we do we do want them to 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 to, to do the, the vitamin D since many people are <laughs> vitamin D deficient. True, Janet. Uh, true, absolutely. But this this kind of research needs to be replicated, needs to be done in different populations. This is just one research paper. It's it's again I really want to caution people. One research does not mean medicine. <laughs> yes. So true. That's a very important point that I think, unfortunately, is not made very often. So I really appreciate you doing that. Lee, it sounds to me like you and Vivek need to talk offline about maybe doing some collaborations and research. Absolutely. You read my mind, Janet. <laughs> We'd be happy to. Absolutely. I, I need collaborators. I need people to think in the same way. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, happy to do that um, and happy to hear about what other research you might have in the pot. Uh, you know, so my biggest focus, uh, as you can see from the resume that I sent you all, has been to uh, better understand this link and association between sleep apnea and cardiovascular disease. So so besides uh, the fact that sleep apnea can cause, you know, feelings of uh, choking, gasping at night and drowsiness and sleepiness in the daytime and 
and cognitive problems, et cetera, et cetera. One of the big things we all worry about with sleep apnea is its long-term effects on the cardiovascular health. Uh, um, you know, strong epidemiologic data suggesting that untreated sleep apnea is an independent risk factor for high blood pressure, worsening high blood pressure, um, you know, independent uh, heart diseases like heart arrhythmias, uh, heart failure, uh, coronary artery disease, insulin uh, insensitivity, so perhaps uh, diabetes, you know, so our, uh, you know, so worldwide people are doing this research to understand what is the mechanisms linking sleep apnea to to a cardiovascular disease. So think of it this way that, you know, uh, when we talk loosely about stress, so we have two systems in our body, the autonomic nervous system, which is sympathetic system or the stress system, and the parasympathetic system, which is our calming system or the de-stressing system. So it's always in a balance, you know, uh, you know, when we are stressed or we have a, you know, fight and fight response, our sympathetic nervous system is geared up. And then when we are calm, our parasympathetic system is uh, is acting up. In sleep in general, when we go to sleep, this uh, this uh, the balance between the two systems is is, is more in terms of the parasympathetic uh, predominance. So, you know, so when we are sleeping, we're supposed to be calm and not have fight and flight and stress responses. So what happens with sleep apnea is that the sleep apnea causes the sympathetic nervous system to to be uh, inappropriately overcharged uh, when it's not supposed to be because sleep apnea episodes are are sympathetically they activate the sympathetic nervous system so that's been known for years that if i was to measure the sympathetic nervous system activity it is heightened not only at night in people with sleep apnea but then over time it becomes heightened during the daytime as well so uh, that is something that's been thought to be the association between apnea and cardiovascular diseases. What we thought was that perhaps it's the uh, lack of parasympathetic activity that might be causing this, this imbalance and leading to cardiovascular disease. So if somehow we can activate the parasympathetic nervous system, then we can protect patients or people from having the cardiovascular outcomes from sleep apnea. So oxytocin is is one of a natural substances in the brain that is uh, supposed to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. It's, you know, so oxytocin is that love portion. It's that, you know, the bonding chemical. It's that calming mechanism that we all have heard about in lay press. And so we use that literature to say, hey, what if we give oxytocin to patients with sleep apnea and and see if it'll have a positive impact on their cardiac health? And so that's what our research has been for the past eight to 10 years at GW, and I'm happy to announce that we are seeing lots and lots and lots of positive results there, as you can see from the publications, that uh, not only, you know, our work started initially in animal models, uh, where we take an animal and we say, you know, we induce what we call a uh, sleep apnea-like model, which is intermittent exposure to hypoxia, and we know that that animal will develop high blood pressure after, you know, going through sleeping in this intermittent hypoxia environment. and But if you activate the oxytocin in that animal, that animal does not develop the high blood pressure. So that's a positive thing. And we've published the same thing in some in, in humans where we did some studies on, on patients with sleep apnea, where we use something called heart rate variability as a, as a surrogate for, for the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So if you take somebody with sleep apnea and they come to the sleep lab and they sleep one night, and we measure the heart rate variability, it is very low, meaning that they're having a lot of sympathetic nervous system activity. But if we take the same patient and we make them sleep after giving them oxytocin, 
their heart rate variability increases tremendously, meaning that all of a sudden the parasympathetic active, uh, system act, got activated, which is a positive thing. Uh, and and we did the same thing with with uh, with uh, you know with the placebo control trial, and we found the same same findings. So now we know for sure that uh, it seems like uh, oxytocin could be protective. And so our next strategy is to obviously do more long-term if, uh, studies, not just a one-night, one-night comparison of oxytocin placebo, but perhaps give oxytocin for longer periods of time, like two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and see if it'll have the same effect. Uh, so that's a trial that's ongoing. Uh, um, you know, the other thing we found with oxytocin was that it seems to activate the upper airway muscles. So perhaps it has its own effect on just in- in preventing sleep apnea to start with, and that's another trial that's uh, that's uh, ongoing. Um, I just want to let the audience know that thanks to the pandemic, everything came to a stop. So, you know, for that's two years nice. there was no clinical research, and all of a sudden, of course, now we've uh, hopefully we are coming out of the pandemic, and so so most of this research has restarted. Uh, what is more exciting to us more recently is that, which is you know obviously uh, more a real life uh, question, is that if I already have sleep apnea and I already have high blood pressure, and I don't treat my sleep apnea because I cannot tolerate the CPAP, what can be done to mitigate that uh, effect of sleep apnea on the high blood pressure uh, besides taking blood pressure medications? And there also, we've, at least in the animal research, we've shown that if that animal is, is given oxytocin, even though they are exposed to the sleep apnea, they will not develop the high blood pressure. So that's exciting to us that even in in terms of ongoing hypoxia, uh, and and once the animal has already developed high blood pressure, I can and reverse that process using oxytocin. So that's an exciting piece of research. Very exciting. That's thrilling, especially to someone like me who has both of those. So, Lee. Yes. So I I just want to mention quickly that you mentioned heart rate variability. We do have a whole episode on heart rate variability, and we'll be sure to put that in the show notes so you can catch that in case you missed it. Um, But that is all the time we have for today. Vivek, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much again, uh, Leigh. Thank you, Janet, for organizing this. uh, and, And I'll be happy to participate again in the future. We'll count on that. All right. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.